It's Mailbag Wednesday. We'll talk about what the Jets can do at the wide receiver position, the upcoming NFL draft, and more on today's episode of the Locked On Jets podcast. You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome. This is the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. It's Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022, and I'm your host, John B. from gangreennation.com. Thank you so much for making the show your first listen or your first watch every day. We're free and available on all platforms. And if you like what you see or hear, click the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode. If you're watching on YouTube and you like what you see, give this episode a thumbs up. Helps the channel out and it helps other Jets fans find Locked On Jets. Well, today we have our weekly mailbag show. Each Wednesday, we try to do a mailbag with listener questions. Let's begin, and our first question is about the NFL Draft. No surprise, this week's the Combine. The question is, it's only fitting that for the first time in Jets history, we have two top 10 picks, and it comes in a draft that seems to lack any can't-miss superstars. If you were Joe Douglas, what would your best outcome be at 4 and 10? And inverse of that, what will make Jets fans very upset? Well, you know, one thing I've learned through the years is... If you watch the NFL draft long enough, you figure out that there's really no such thing as a can't-miss superstar. I think through the years, plenty of guys who were called can't-miss missed. And sometimes these were not guys who ended up being enormous busts, like Jadavian Clowney in 2014. This guy was supposed to be the next great pass rusher in the NFL. And Jadavian Clowney turned into a very good player. He actually did make an all-pro team at one point. Excellent run stopper. Above-average pass rusher, but not the type of talent who's like the best guy in the league the way a guy who was picked a few selections later that year Khalil Mack was you know you go back to 2006 the entire 2005 season in the NFL was viewed as like the competition to get Reggie Bush it's amazing to think that wasn't that long ago this was 2005 teams were viewed as tanking for a running back can you imagine that in today's NFL teams were like trying to lose, or the perception, I don't think anybody was really trying to lose, but the perception was that teams were trying to lose for a running back. That's the kind of talent Reggie Bush was viewed as. And again, he was a good back in the NFL. He had a 1,000-yard season. It's not like he was a total bust, but he wasn't a superstar. He wasn't the type of generational, ta- I hate the word generational, I shouldn't use that, because I think it's been used too much in recent years, but he wasn't the type of elite back. He was supposed to be the next Ladanian Tomlinson. He was not that. You go back to 2004, and this one always makes me laugh, but that was the quarterback class of Eli Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, and Philip Rivers. And I can't tell you at the time how many people said something along the lines of, well, do you really want to take one of these quarterbacks? Quarterback is risky. And all three of those guys are probably going to end up in the Hall of Fame. You, you may dispute Rivers, you may dispute Eli, but I think at the end of the day, all three of them is going to end up in the Hall of Fame. The saying at the time from a lot of people was, well, do you want any of these risky quarterbacks when you got the can't-miss left tackle prospect Robert Gallery, who's going to be just a rock-solid left tackle for the next 10 to 15 years? Again, Robert Gallery actually turned into a decent player when he moved inside the guard, but he ended up not being the safe pick. So there's really no such thing as a can't-miss prospect. You can't know what the future holds. There are some players who are probably less risky than others, if your game is more refined at your position, if you're, you, know, you understand technique at your position, your odds are better 
of avoiding a huge bust than somebody else. And if you are refined at your position and you've got and you've got great athleticism, then yeah, your odds of being great are better than somebody else. But we're kind of taking educated guesses. So I don't think that the pessimism around having two top 10 picks in a year like this is necessarily warranted. Just like I don't think that the excitement of a year where there's a perception that there can't miss talent would necessarily be warranted. There are always going to be good players. There are going to be very good players in the draft class. I remember 2013. That was a year where the Jets' biggest need was probably the wide receiver position. And it was viewed as a very weak draft class at the wide receiver position. You know, Tavon Austin was viewed as kind of the consensus, the consensus top guy. You had Cordero Patterson, who, despite the fact he had just had a very good year with Atlanta, pretty big disappointment for a first-round pick if you look at the entirety of his career. And I know somebody's going to say, well, he had a good year. Well, this was a good year. But for where he was drafted, it was a disappointment. That said, that was a draft class that included DeAndre Hopkins, and it, it included Keenan Allen. So if you know what you're doing, you're going to be able to hit on picks. Unfortunately, the Jets did not know what they were doing that year. So hopefully we're going to do a little bit better this year. So don't get too upset because the perceptions that the draft class isn't that talented. Because even 13, a year where it really was not a great draft class, there still was a lot of talent. And the Jets really did not get much of it aside from Sheldon Richardson. But hopefully, again, hopefully they'll do better this year. So what's the best case scenario? Well, for me, the best case scenario is probably some team falling in love with one of these quarterbacks, which is a lot to ask because I'm again going to reference the 2013 draft class. That was a horrible draft class. I mean, of the quarterbacks that year, Mike Glennon was probably the best. It's unbelievable how bad that class was at the quarterback position. This is evoking memories of that year, but who knows? Maybe somebody falls in love with the quarterback. And the best case scenario is the Jets being able to trade back from four because, and I got to tell you this, like I've looked at the recent history Teams really, really, really overpay to get into the top five. You almost always come out ahead if you trade down from the top five because it's not it's not because there's something about being in the top. It's not it's not necessarily a case where you're just guaranteed. It's just like top five is something you want to get out of. It's that teams overpay a lot to get into the top five, and you almost always come out ahead trading down from the top five. But even if you trade down from ten, and you know there's a big rumor the Steelers may want Malik Willis out of Liberty. And they're, they're sitting at 20. If you look at recent history, moving up from 20 to 10 for a quarterback usually means you get a future first-round pick. So if the Jets were able to move down from, from 10 to 20, they'd still have two first-round picks this year. Then they'd have two first-round picks again next year. Again, recent history, you know, last year was probably the best example. The Bears moved up from 20 to 11. Giants got a future first-round pick. You go back to 2017. Uh, the Chiefs and Texans were a little bit further down, but they both gave up first-round picks to move up for quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson, respectively. So if you're looking at building this team, I mean, I think that would be the best-case scenario. But listen, there's always a scenario where somebody you're not expecting to fall falls. So let's say Kayvon Thibodeau falls to four and Kyle Hamilton falls to ten, and I know people are not going to love the idea of a safety at ten. People would really hate the idea of a safety at four, and some of those folks will still object at ten, but... You know, if you have guys who fall, that could be good. But you know, what's the worst case scenario? Well, I mean, I think anybody who's drafted high, you can't be too pessimistic about it unless the Jets do something ridiculous like you know draft a fullback, which won't happen. My dad was always worried. Every single year, I talked to my dad. He goes, "They're going to draft a. They're going to do something ridiculous like draft a fullback." And I always say, "Dad, like Jets may be dumb. They're not that dumb." So unless you do something really ridiculous, any prospect you draft in the top ten's got ability. 
they're going to have a chance to become a very good player for you, even if it's kind of unconventional, even if it like kind of goes against what the mocks are. There should be optimism after draft day. You know, if you ever listen to one of my post-draft podcasts, I always try and have optimism because anybody who's drafted him, there's something there that makes them potentially a good player. So I don't know that there is necessarily a worst-case scenario for me. Every single player has strengths and has weaknesses. So you just hope that the strengths outweigh the weaknesses. You hope you have a team in place that can develop talent, and we'll see what happens from there. Next question, in your lifetime, who was the one player you wanted to draft in the first round who the Jets got? How did that turn out? And who was the one player in the first round you wanted and the Jets did not get? Did the player perform better on his other team versus the player the Jets selected? Well, there's been more in my lifetime. I'm going to try and keep it like outside the top five, top ten, because you know there are plenty of examples. I mean, I really wanted the Jets to get Sam Darnold, and hate to tell you, that, that one did not work out very well. Um, back in 06... Reggie Bush, Matt Leiner, the two USC stars I really wanted. Jets did not have a chance to draft Reggie Bush. They did have a chance to draft Matt Leiner. They passed on him for Brickishaw Ferguson. I was upset at the time. That one worked out pretty well. I think I was wrong on that one. Go back to 2000, I really wanted the Jets to draft Chad Pennington. This was an interesting one because in 2000, the Jets had four first-round picks. They got one from New England because Belichick left the Jets to go to New England, that whole saga. And they got two more after trading Keyshawn Johnson. I really wanted Chad Pennington. And the Jets picked Pennington, but they waited until their third pick. They drafted uh, John Abraham and Sean Ellis, both of whom turned out to be very successful selections. But I remember, like, after the first pick, I'm like, okay, well, we can still get Pennington with the second pick. And then they pass on Pennington again. And I'm like, well, there's no way he's going to last to the third pick. And then he did. And unfortunately, injuries kind of derailed his career. I think Pennington could have been really good. But if we're like, going outside, like, the obvious, like, top, picks i'd say there's probably like a two-year stretch there 2004 i really wanted jonathan vilma out of miami the linebacker and the jets got him and i was so happy and vilma was an excellent player for the jets and this is one i put on eric mangini honestly i think that there are large sections of the fan base where eric mangini is still revered to these days people think he did not get a fair and i disagree with it jonathan vilma is a perfect example Two years into his career, Jonathan Vilma looked like he was going to be a great linebacker. Mangini comes in. He installs a 3-4 defense. The Jets really did not have the personnel to run it. Vilma struggled. He ends up getting traded. The Jets probably got like 30 cents on the dollar after the 2007 season. They trade him to New Orleans. And they, you know, like even in the 3-4 defense, I think Vilma could have made it work if you had the right pieces around him. Because that year, that was the year of the year they traded him. After that, they got Chris Jenkins to play nose tackle. If you're going to play a guy like Vilma in a 3-4, you got to have a big nose tackle in front of him to protect him, let him you know do his thing. I think if you put Vilma next to David Harris, a guy who was good, who could handle shedding blocks and playing the run game, again, you could let Vilma do the things he was better at. I don't think the Jets put Vilma in a position to succeed, even in the 3-4 defense. And he got traded to New Orleans. The Jets got very little in return. And Vilma goes to New Orleans and wins a Super Bowl and... In that Super Bowl, he played a key role. He was kind of matched up with Peyton Manning. And as Manning was changing plays, Vilma was changing plays. And he kind of outfoxed Peyton Manning. So a happy beginning and a very sad ending to that one. And then the next year in 2005, a guy I really wanted, Jets kind of had a hole at tight end because Anthony Becht had left in free agency. I really wanted Heath Miller out of Virginia. And I'm going to try and stay calm for this one because this one, this one, annoys me to no end. The Jets did not draft Heath Miller. Pittsburgh drafted Heath Miller. 
Now, was Heath Miller ever the best tight end in the NFL? No. But he was a guy who was very solid. Pittsburgh never had to worry about tight end again as long as Heath Miller, until Heath Miller retired. He's just a really solid guy, did his job effectively. And the Jets, through that era where Heath Miller was in the NFL, they had lots of issues at the tight end position. They could have addressed it in 2005. What they did was they traded for Doug Jolly. They took their first round pick and they traded it to Oakland for Doug Jolly. Doug Jolly lasted one year. Doug Jolly did next to nothing. He was a tight end. But people forget, they didn't just trade a first, a straight first round pick for Doug Jolly. They got Oakland's second in return. And that was the pick they used to take Mike Nugent, a kicker. And Nugent was supposed to be like the next great kicker in the NFL. He was supposed to be kind of like Justin Tucker is today. And in all honesty, like if he was Justin Tucker, I actually like, and this is going to be like controversial because a lot of people think you, you can never pick a kicker high. If he's Justin Tucker... I actually think that like you could plausibly argue that that was like a pick that could justify a second rounder. Unfortunately, he was not though. He was a good kicker, and that's the thing is like Nugent was a pretty good kicker. He just wasn't as good as the Jets were hoping for, and this was like classic Jets because they had lost that pit playoff game in Pittsburgh because Doug Bryan missed two field goals at the end of regulation, and they overreacted and they drafted the kicker in the second round. Who again, if he was as good as advertised. Maybe it would have been worth it, but he just wasn't, and even though he was a pretty good kicker. So we lost Heath Miller to get Doug Jolly and Mike Nugent. That one bothers me. Even though, again, Heath Miller was never, like, the best tight end in the NFL, but he would have stabilized a position where the Jets had issues forever. So that one annoys me to no end. Now, ahead here on the Locked On Jets podcast, we'll continue our mailbag show. Are there potential issues with the Jets as they look to address the wide receiver position? We'll talk about that ahead here on this mailbag edition of Locked On Jets. There's plenty to talk about in the NFL this week. We've got the Combine. Free agency is ahead. In the not-too-distant future, we'll also have the NFL draft, but games are over for this year. Basketball, however, is full steam ahead for both pro and college hoops. And from all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline.net is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. BetOnline remains the best spot for all your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline.net is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. BetOnline, where the game starts. Thank you for making Lockdown Jets your first listen or your first watch every day. We're free and available on all platforms. If you like what you see or hear, click the subscribe button. And if you enjoy this channel on YouTube, give this episode a thumbs up. Helps the channel out, helps other Jets fans find Lockdown Jets. We continue with our Wednesday mailbag show. Our next question, John, I think we all want to see the Jets add a big-time pass catcher this offseason. However, with Zach Wilson being a second-year quarterback with a very up-and-down first season, do you think we will have trouble landing top-tier receivers? It's an interesting question, I think, with a nuanced answer. Now, if you take somebody in the draft who you think is going to be a big-time receiver, obviously Zach, you know, obviously, concerns about Zach Wilson are not going to be an issue. If you're talking free agency, it's not clear because everybody has different priorities. For example, you know, most free agents who hit the open market, their number one priority is just to make as much money as possible. So somebody like that, you know, if the Jets bid highest, they'll have a pretty good chance of landing him. The number two priority tends to be to go to a good organization 
that's an area where the Jets may struggle. And it's not really so much about Zach Wilson as it is the perception in the league that the Jets are just not a team people want to go to. It's something they have to fight. It's not something that's going to change until they start winning. And you've seen through the years, the Jets have kind of been the team that free agents haven't taken seriously. I mean, the Jets have had to drastically overpay guys who were viewed as marquee guys like Trumaine Johnson and C.J. Mosley to get to land them. And other guys have just kind of used the Jets as kind of as a team out there that helps them get a bigger offer from another team. They say, well, we got this offer from the Jets. Can you up your bid to another team? So those guys don't really take the Jets seriously. But, you know, you never know what somebody thinks. Back when the Jets signed Eric Decker in 2014, he said that Geno Smith was a big part of why he signed, that he really believed in Geno Smith. Geno Smith did not have that great of a rookie year. The Jets did surprise everybody by going 8-8. Geno had some game-winning drives, but... If you watch Gino that year, I mean, I don't know that you necessarily were convinced or should have been convinced that he was going to be a great player. Now, you may say Decker wasn't being honest, that he just came for the money. That may be true. But that shows you that sometimes money would be the driving force. So I think it could be an impact. And it's again, it's not so much Zach Wilson as it is just the general perception of the Jets organization. But I don't think it's going to be a complete the type of thing that's going to completely prevent the Jets from being able to land a receiver. And they also could work the trade market. You know, if an, if an Amari Cooper is available in a deal, maybe you, you make a deal, maybe you make a trade. So I don't think it's an insurmountable obstacle. I think it could be an, obst- an obstacle to a certain extent, but I don't think it's the kind of thing that will completely prevent the Jets from landing a receiver. And I don't think it's the type of thing that would be an excuse for the front office if they failed to do so. Our next question, some of the best receiver options who might fit as an X receiver, such as Godwin in free agency and Williams and London in the draft, would be going into the season hurt, rehabbing, or banged up. Should this exclude them from being acquired? Well, not necessarily. And I think this is one of the things we struggle with sometimes as fans and I think in the media as well. There are just some things we don't know. And I, you know, sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, it's worth the risk even though he's injured or You'll hear somebody say, well, it's too risky. They're coming off an injury. Well, we don't really have the information to make an informed judgment on that. We're kind of just like throwing something out there without any of the relevant information. The Jets have a medical team, and it's their job to figure these things out. They have way more information than you or I have. So you have I don't know if you have to trust them is the right phrase here, but you can't really judge it yourself. It's just the type of thing you have to go with. You have to figure out. And now I'll say this. Yesterday, Tampa Bay's general manager spoke at the Combine about Chris Godwin. And typically, you know, you get like a political response from general managers when they talk about players who are free agents. They'll say, oh, well, you know, we're hoping to have him back. We have a salary cap to deal with. You know, you get kind of like a noncommittal answer. He did say we really, really want Chris Godwin back, which kind of stood out to me. And maybe that's a sign Chris Godwin's injury is not going to be the type of thing that prevents him from having success, but it's not so much whether the guy's coming back from an injury. It's more, are they going to get back to being 100%? Like a Jamison Williams, who you mentioned, his game is so based on speed that I think it is important. Like you're going to have to determine medically whether he's going to get back to being as fast as he was before. If he is, then I don't think you take him off the board. I mean, at the end of the day, you're not expecting much from a rookie anyway. And beyond that, you're looking for the long haul. You're looking for somebody who's going to produce. I mean, if somebody's going to miss a game or two or even a, the first month of the season, if it's somebody you want to be on your team for like the next eight to 10 years, is that really that big of a deal that you take them off the board? 
So I, I don't think it should be a deal breaker, but ultimately these decisions are going to have to be made by the medical team. And it's just not something like you or I are going to have the information. It's not something anybody in the press is really going to have the information on. It's really not a question of whether they're returning from an injury. It's a question of will they recover? And again, the medical team are, is the one that really can determine that. Our next question. Hi, John. We've all been told what a great motivator Salah is. Is it at all concerning to you how unmotivated it seems Becton and Mims were last season? I think it's too early to say. I mean, listen, in my lifetime, probably the best motivator was Bill Parcells. Because I, I wasn't around for Lombardi. Lombardi was probably the best motivator in the history of the league. But in my lifetime, it was probably Bill Parcells. But he had some guys he just couldn't get through to. And I don't know that Becton necessarily had motivational issues. I think with Becton, there's a lot we're speculating on where we don't know it for a fact. But for the sake of argument, let's say the Jets had a couple of guys with motivational issues. There are always players in the NFL who a coach just can't get through to, who maybe have talent, who just can't make it work. So I don't know that it's necessarily a mark against the coach if like there's one or two players who he can't motivate. I think you have to see it broader. I think you have to see a, you know, a bigger picture of the team, and it has to be over a longer period of time. So I'm not ready to say that this is a warning sign about Salah. Again, I don't even know that motivation was necessarily the primary issue with the, those two guys, so I, I would be inclined to cut Salah a break there. Now, ahead here on the Lockdown Jets podcast, we'll talk about one of the most complicated, confusing aspects of the draft. I'll do my best to explain it and put it into simple terms. That's ahead here on this Wednesday mailbag edition of Locked On Jets. You know, we were just talking about motivation, and I think everybody should be motivated to go out and get some Built Bars. Built Bars is the best tasting protein bar on the market. Absolutely delicious. Have you tried Puffs yet? If not, you're missing out on one of the best tasting Built Bars ever. Puffs are the first ever protein infused marshmallow. They're fluffy, they're marshmallowy. They're not just a protein bar, they're a treat, and they're covered in 100% real chocolate, just like all other built bars. And there are so many delicious flavors. You got mint brownie, co- coconut, coconut almond, and new for this month is white chocolate cookies and cream. They're all delicious, and new flavors are coming out all the time. If they think a flavor might be good, they'll make it. It will be delicious, and it will be good for you. Most built bars contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. Compare that to a candy bar, which usually has around 240 calories. 30 grams of sugar, and dozens of net carbs. So go to built.com to check out all the options. Again, that's built.com, B-U-I-L-T.com, for more information on delicious built bars. This is the Locked On Jets podcast on this Mailbag Wednesday. We continue. Our next question, can you explain exactly how compensatory picks work? If Barrios was to sign for somebody somewhere else for, say, $9 million, what sort of compensatory pick would the Jets be looking to get back? Yeah, compensatory picks are one of the most confusing, convoluted aspects of the offseason. And the great website, Over the Cap, actually kind of reverse-engineered this a couple of years ago, and they figured out how the league gives out compensatory picks. Essentially, the way it works is there are 32 compensatory picks for free agency, and the league has added more compensatory picks for other reasons, but if we're talking free agency each year. There are 32 compensatory picks, and they go to the essentially, there are maybe a few other factors here, but more or less, they go to the teams that lost the 32 highest paid players in free agency. So it depends what round you go, get, third, fourth, fifth, depends on how much money the guy you lost makes. So the team that loses the most expensive free agent gets a third round pick and the second most gets a third round pick. And then, you know, you have fourth round picks, you have fifth round picks and, and so on. There's a catch though. So let's say, let's say 
let's just say for the sake of argument, this is not going to happen. But let's let's say that the Jets lose Braxton Berrios, and Braxton Berrios is the highest paid player in free agency this year. The Jets would be in line to get a third round pick, but there's a catch. If you sign a player from another team, that cancels out the player you lose. So if the Jets go out and sign a player, even if they lose Berrios, that cancels out losing Berrios. So the Jets would not be entitled to a compensatory pick. The Jets would have to lose a, then have to lose a second player in order to get a compensatory pick. Because you have to, essentially what it is, every player you sign cancels out one player you lose. So you have to lose more than you sign. So that's one of the reasons that this is kind of a controversial aspect of the NFL, because generally speaking, the league's rules are supposed to be built to help bad, bad teams get good. And this is one of those things that kind of helps good teams, because good teams are the ones who lose more players than they sign. And for these reasons... I think it's unlikely the Jets would get a compensatory pick for Barrios because Jets have to add players in free agency. They're not good enough to just sit around and collect compensatory picks. I mean, I, I, listen, I really value draft picks, but you're going to tell me you're not going to sign anybody just to get like a mid-round pick? That doesn't seem like such a great move for a team in the Jets position, whereas teams like, you know, probably the best team working the compensatory pick system through the years has been Baltimore because they always have so much talent. They lose guys and they build their they essentially build their offseason strategy around adding compensatory picks so that's it's one of the reasons baltimore is such a well-run organization and hopefully the jets will get there someday where they'll have so much talent that they'll lose it and they'll be able to add compensatory picks and there are a few other catches i mean it's a very brief overview a player has to complete his contract to be considered part of the compensatory pick formula so if somebody's cut if somebody's like a cap cut they don't factor in. Losing that guy signing with another team doesn't add a compensatory pick for you. And signing a player who was cut from another team, that doesn't cancel out any player you lose. So players have to be completed players have to have completed their contract in order to factor into compensatory picks. So all that's like a very brief overview. Hopefully that makes the system make a little bit more sense to you. Our last question. John Schmidt, Joe Fields, Jim Sweeney, Kevin Y, Nick Mangold. One of our few successful position groups in, in history is center. I really think we need to take a player like Tyler Linderbaum with one of our one one of our first round picks. Our success on the line starts with good center play. Would you take Linderbaum where we're picking, or if you think he may drop, would you trade down? Yeah, I like Linderbaum. I, I think he definitely an option if you trade down. Is top ten too high for a center? You know, if you look at NFL history, it probably is. Would it be my first pick? I, you know, I don't know. But the way I like to look at this is there are lots of people who say something like, well, even if you have a center who is great, it's not worth taking him and picking him in the top 10. And I always like to like kind of test this out. So let's take the best center in the NFL. Let's say it's Jason Kelsey because he was the first team all pro for the AP this year. Let's go back to Jason Kelsey's draft class. If you took Jason Kelsey in the top 10, would that be a bad pick? I don't think so. So I think like, Obviously, there's some point where drafting a center in the top 10 is defensible. If a guy was the like the eighth best center in the NFL, could you justify taking him in the top 10? Probably not. But there's somewhere where taking a center, if a center is good enough, I think you could justify it. Now, if you like, we're talking long snapper, even if you have the best long snapper in the NFL, if you took him in the top 10, would you be able to justify it? No. Took a fullback in the top 10, would you be able to justify it? Even the best guy? No. If you took a punter, could you justify taking him in the top 10, even if he's the best in the NFL? No. So I think center is a little bit different. I think center, you could justify taking the best guy in the NFL if that's how you have him graded in the top 10. But again, it's it's one of those positions. 
if you took the eighth best center in the NFL in the top 10, I think it would be tough to justify. Whereas, say, like, edge rusher. If you took the eighth best edge rusher in the top 10, very easy to justify. So I think the threshold for success is higher. And I do think that there's an argument that maybe center has become a little less important in today's NFL. You know, the NFL 15, 20 years ago, lots of teams were building their defense, a 3-4 defense, where you were getting this big space-eating nose tackle who lined up directly over the center, and you had to have somebody who could anchor, somebody who could control the point of attack. I think that, you know, those defenses aren't really as prevalent in today's NFL. Centers are more helping the guards out. They're more part of double teams. So, you know, from that standpoint, maybe center's a little less important. I think, obviously, it's not the biggest need the Jets have. Connor McGovern's playing very well, even though he's entering the final year of his contract. So, from that standpoint, if you're focused specifically on need, you may question that. And, you know, McGovern could move to guard, but then you'd kind of have two guys. You know, I think Linderbaum and McGovern are both kind of undersized to play guard. So, you move one there, and you have those two guys next to each other, two guys who are a little undersized next to each other. You may have some issues on the interior. But if you're thinking long-term, you know, I think the draft, as much as anything, you have to focus on long-term. You have to focus on finding guys who could be on your team for 10 years. I, I think it's defensible. I don't know it's the direction I would necessarily go in, but I don't agree with the people who say you couldn't possibly defend it. I think that there is an argument to be made if the Jets decided to go in that direction. So I guess I kind of fall in the middle ground there. Anyway, that's all for our show today. Thank you for listening, and thank you for watching if you're checking out this channel on YouTube. This has been the Lockdown Jets podcast, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network. Your team every day is our motto. If you like what you see or hear, click the subscribe button. And if you're watching on YouTube, give this episode a thumbs up. Helps out the channel. Helps other Jets fans find Lockdown Jets. I hope you have a great Wednesday, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more Jets.